While beginning against Marcion, seemingly accepting of Paul, Tertullian finally gets to the elephant in the room, Paul, and makes the following sober points about Paul. Jesus never made Paul an apostle from the records that we can read. Paul's claim to apostleship solely relies upon Paul's veracity. If Paul were a true apostle, he is still an inferior apostle because Paul in Acts 15 submitted his doctrine to the Twelve. If Paul later varied from the Twelve, we must regard the Twelve as more authoritative than Paul because he came later. Paul's claim of being selected as an apostle later by Jesus seems implausible. The story asks us to believe Jesus had not planned things adequately with the Twelve. Lastly, Jesus warned us of false prophets who would come doing miracles in his name and signs and wonders, and Paul perfectly matches that prophesied type of prophet. The key quote with most of these points is the following passage from Tertullian, written in 207 AD and against Marcion. Tertullian says, I desire to hear from Marcion the origin of Paul the Apostle. I am sort of new disciple, having had instruction from no other teacher. For the moment, my only belief is that nothing ought to be believed without good reason, and that this is believed without good reason, which is believed without knowledge of its origin. And I must, with the best of reasons, approach this inquiry with uneasiness when I find one affirmed to be an apostle, of whom in the list of the apostles in the gospel I find no trace. So when I am told that he, Paul, was subsequently promoted by our Lord, by now at rest in heaven, I find some lack of foresight in the fact that Christ did not know beforehand that he would have need of him, but after setting in order the office of apostleship and sending them out upon their duties, considered it necessary, on an impulse and not by deliberation, to add another, by compulsion, so to speak, and not by design namely, on the road to Damascus. So then, shipmaster out of Pontus, namely Marcion, supposing that you have never accepted into your craft any smuggled or illicit merchandise, have never appropriated or adulterated any cargo, and in these things of God are even more careful and trustworthy, will you please tell us under what bill of lading you accepted Paul as apostle? who had stamped him with that mark of distinction, who commended him to you, and who put him in your charge. Only so you may with confidence disembark him, Paul. Only so he can avoid being proved to belong to him who has put in evidence all the documents that attest to his apostleship. He, Paul, himself, says Marcion, claims to be an apostle, and that not from men, nor through any man, but through Jesus Christ. Clearly any man can make claims for himself, but his claim is confirmed by another person's attestation. One person writes the document, another signs it, a third attests the signature, and a fourth enters it into the records. No man is for himself both claimant and witness. Besides this, you have found it written that many will come and say, I am Christ, if there is one who makes a false claim to be Christ's, much more can there be one who professes that he is an apostle of Christ. Let the apostle belong to your other God.
Tertullian against Marcion at pages 509-511. Earlier in Book 4, Chapter 2 of Tertullian's Against Marcion, Tertullian also clearly said Paul's authority is inferior to that of the Twelve Apostles. Tertullian explains Paul's gospel is only valid so long as it is consistent with Jesus and the Twelve. First, in what we will quote in a moment, Tertullian starts out by emphasizing the priority of the Gospels written by the actual Twelve Apostles, namely the Gospels of Matthew and John. Those of Luke and Mark were inferior because they were produced merely by disciples of their teachers. Tertullian was rebutting Marcion's apparent claim Paul's authority comes from his association with Luke. Later, Tertullian identifies Luke and Mark as apostolic men, but not as apostles. Tertullian writes, I lay it down to begin with that the documents of the gospel have the apostles for their authors, and that this task of promulgating the gospel was imposed upon them by our Lord himself. If they also have for their authors apostolic men, namely Luke and Mark, yet these stand not alone, but as companions of apostles or followers of apostles. Because the preaching of disciples, Luke or Mark, might be made suspect of the desire of vainglory unless there stood by it the authority of their teachers, the twelve apostles, or rather the authority of Christ, which made the apostles teachers. In short, from among the apostles the faith is introduced to us by John and Matthew, while from among apostolic men Luke and Mark give it a renewal all of them beginning with the same rules of belief as far as relates to the only one God, the Creator, and to his Christ, born of a virgin, the fulfillment of the law, and the prophets. Marcion seems to have singled out Luke for his mutilating process, namely writing a gospel apparently based upon Luke, but altering it. Luke, however, was not an apostle, but only an apostolic man not a master, but a disciple, and so inferior to a master. This unquestionably puts Luke below the other Gospels of Matthew and John. Thus, Tertullian was saying that, one, to the extent Marcion is using Luke legitimately, then, two, Luke is still inferior to the Gospel accounts of Matthew and John. Tertullian's quote below continues from the last quote above. In this next quote, Tertullian starts out by making clear that Luke is inferior to the Apostles' Gospel because Luke's master, teacher, was Paul, and Paul was a lesser apostle than the Twelve, i.e. apostle with a small a. Tertullian then explains Paul could not come with another Gospel than the Twelve, and Paul's authority derived from the Twelve, and Paul was inferior to them. Tertullian cites Acts Chapter 15 is proof, just as we did above. Tertullian explains. Now, Luke was not an apostle, but an apostolic man. Not a master, but a disciple. In any case, less than his master, Paul, and assuredly even more of lesser account as being a follower of a later apostle, Paul. To be sure, so that even if Marcion had introduced his gospel, under the name of Paul in person, that one single document would not be adequate for our faith 
if destitute of the support of Paul's predecessors, the twelve apostles. For we should demand the production of that gospel also which Paul found in existence, that to which he gave his assent, that with which shortly afterwards he was anxious that his own should agree. For his intention in going up to Jerusalem to know and to consult the apostles was lest perchance he had run in vain, that is, lest perchance he had not believed as they did, or were not preaching the gospel in their manner. At length, when he, Paul, had conferred with the original apostles, and there was an agreement concerning the rule of faith, they joined the right hands of fellowship. If he, Paul, therefore, who gave the light to Luke, chose to have his predecessor's authority for his faith as well as his preaching, much more must I require for Luke's gospel the authority from the twelve which was necessary for the gospel of his master, Paul. The source is Tertullian against Marcion, pages 263-265, book 4, chapter 2. Tertullian could not be more clear. Paul's authority was not recognized as direct from Jesus or by revelation. The book of Acts by Luke proves it only derived from Paul's recognition by the twelve apostles. He was their disciple, and they were Paul's masters. If Paul created a gospel text, Tertullian responds that Paul's conduct in Acts chapter 15 reveals Paul's authority could not exceed the words and guidance of the twelve. Paul was not allowed to run beyond the teachings of Christ that the twelve had. Thus, if Paul was Luke's source for his gospel, then Luke's gospel still must be consistent with the apostolic canon of Matthew and John, or otherwise it is invalid. This means that for Tertullian, Paul was not free to utter doctrines that were inconsistent with the gospels of Matthew or John. Conclusion Scholars now concur with Tertullian's views of Acts. Paul is never called an apostle of Jesus Christ with a capital A. Only Matthias filled the last and final spot to complete the number at 12. Hence, whatever authority belongs to an apostle of Jesus Christ, Luke did not recognize Paul had it. Rather, Luke undermined it and gave that final office, the only available space after Judas's betrayal, to Matthias. Paul's claim of apostleship with a capital A, if he meant that, rests solely on his own word. Jesus told us in Revelation 2.2 that self-reporting is not enough. Because Paul also used the term apostle loosely in its ordinary messenger sense, one cannot prove Paul deliberately lied unless we read Jesus telling us that in Revelation 2.2. However, if one concedes that Paul used the term apostle loosely, then one must regard Paul's claim of apostleship only had very loose meaning to it. Paul thus would have no authority of that title. Hence, whichever way you interpret Paul's words as apostle with a capital A or not, simply remember that whenever you hear the oft-repeated title, Apostle Paul, it is misleading. It is being used in a title sense, which is untrue for Paul. The last apostle appointed to fill their number back out at 12, chosen by the Holy Spirit for Acts 1, was Matthias.
Study Notes A friend of our ministry wrote a good piece, How Many Apostles of Jesus Christ in the Bible, that is another approach to supporting the conclusion of the article above. In History of Paul, at Problems with Paul, we read, Every occurrence of the number 13, and likewise of every multiple of it, stamps that with which it stands in connection with rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, revolution, or some kindred idea. E.W. Bollinger. The number 13 also includes famine. Amos 8.11 tells us of the famine for the word of Yahweh in the last days. Could a 13th apostle be the reason for this famine? Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. So I looked up the Bollinger reference. The quote is valid, citing numerous scriptures as proof, for example, Genesis 27-25, and is found in E.W. Bollinger, descendant of the famous reformer of the same last name, in his number in scripture, its supernatural design and spiritual significance, Craigle 2003, at page 205. Perhaps to spare any arrows being thrown at Paul, Bollinger ascribes 14 epistles to Paul. This requires one to include erroneously the epistles of the Hebrews, which in the 400s was ascribed to Paul, but Paul in fact did not write it, as it is almost universally now recognized. See our article, Who Wrote Hebrews? Isaiah's prophecy about SHL, a.k.a. Saul, versus Jesus. In Isaiah 28.18, God speaks of a people who have a covenant with SHL, typically translated as Sheol, or the grave. The people falsely believe this covenant will protect them from the whip when it passes through. This means these covenant people believe their covenant with SHL gives them salvation protection from God's wrath then these people whose prophets and leaders are apostate against God's law are at odds with what God describes as something he already laid as a chief cornerstone at Zion. Isaiah 28.16, see below. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a precious cornerstone. This cornerstone is Christ, as Jesus Yeshua made clear in Luke 20.17. The Hebrew at issue here is Isaiah 28.15, SHL. This can be read as either Saul or Sheol. Why is that? Biblical Hebrew at issue is the word spelled SHL. Biblical Hebrew has no vowels. It is up to the reader to determine what Hebrew word that it represents. When rendered into English, the translator is obligated to explain alternatives that could fit the context. For context is what must be relied upon to determine what vowels one can infer belong to the letters SHL in Isaiah 28. 
How do we know the letters are the same? The name Saul is from the Hebrew word pronounced Shaul. It means asked or prayed in Hebrew. In a scholarly discussion of 1 Samuel 28, when Saul, the anointed first king of Israel, goes to see the witch of Endor, the python priestess, it is mentioned parenthetically, Saul, whose name is spelled like SHL, as with the Hebrew name for Sheol, SHL. Thus, when one reads Isaiah 28, but knows also that Jesus cites this passage in Luke 20, as being about himself as the chief cornerstone, this tells us how Jesus would read this entire passage. It is clearly a contrast between a competing covenant from SHL versus a previously late foundation established by Jesus, Yeshua, in Isaiah 28. The people are being misled to follow a covenant on terms set forth by SHL, which Isaiah says is built on lies. This covenant with SHL will lead them to death, and when the whip of judgment passes through, they will not be protected as they are assuming to be the case. Isaiah quotes Yahweh saying righteousness will be the plumb line, the measuring stick of salvation, not what SHL is selling. Please listen with ears to hear verses 14 through 18 with Saul placed besides Sheol as an alternative translation. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Saul, Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Saul, Sheol, will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. The message, then, would be those relying upon a covenant with Paul, Saul, not the previously renewed one by the chief cornerstone, Yeshua, have a false hope. God describes it as a covenant with death and taking refuge in lies. What does it mean, a refuge of lies? One possibility is this could mean the lies of translators who mistranslate and distort many passages to insulate us from hearing Paul's true horrible words, such as Paul defending lying, to advance the gospel in Romans 3, 7. Paul there concludes it is no sin. But the NIV, without any warrant, adds words so it reads, some say, lying to advance the gospel is no sin. There are many more such passages that are altered or mistranslated to disguise Paul's true words. See, mistranslations to help Paul. More likely meaning of refuge of lies. However, I believe refuge of lies is Paul's own teaching from Isaiah 28 itself, ascribing something to it that it does not have. What if Isaiah means the people put refuge in a lie? a false translation of Isaiah 28 itself invented solely by Paul, to support his faith and facts doctrine for salvation. 
That would make the most sense, as we shall see. The end. Note, a further relevant verse is Paul's humble claim to have laid the foundation of our faith. This appears at odds with Jesus being the chief cornerstone, hence that Jesus is the true founder of our faith. Quote, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care, unquote. 1 Corinthians 3.10, NIV.